Welcome to The Habit Podcast, conversations with writers about writing. I'm Jonathan Rogers, your host. Marilyn McIntyre is a writer, a speaker, and a professor of medical humanities at the UC Berkeley and UC San Francisco Joint Medical Program. She's written 20-something books, several poetry books, books about end-of-life issues, and books about the way we choose and use our words in public discourse. Her most recent book, Speaking Peace in a Climate of Conflict, is a follow-up to her earlier book, Caring for Words in a Culture of Lies. Marilyn McIntyre, thank you so much for being on the Habit Podcast. Your book, Speaking Peace in a Climate of Conflict, um, it's so important for, you know, for this time. And, um, and so I'm looking forward to having a, a conversation with you about it and just about all the issues um, that, that surround your book. And so if we're, since we're having a conversation, I want to start with that idea, an idea that, that you mentioned in your book. And that is that um, when you talk about how important conversation is, and, and you say that traditionally conversation has been the warp and woof of community life. What do you mean when you say that? I mean that to come into conversation with people, if you look at its etymology, it goes all the way back to much richer meanings, like to dwell with or to walk mm-hmm. with, mm-hmm. to be on a path. Literally with. to turn toward, right? The, the, it's or, or turn yeah. the other. Yeah. Yeah. Or to turn with. Yeah. And I also think of my grandmother who grew up in Virginia and my grandpa who grew up in North Carolina and somehow they came out of a particular generation and Southern culture where visiting was really an active verb. You just Mm -hmm. sit down and you visit for a while and people would converse without uh, just without much distraction or without much intention beyond exploring something together, not just exchanging news, but Uh Um, reflecting on things yeah. together. Yeah. Or, I mean, even not reflecting, but just being present, right? I mean, right. discussions about the weather, something you can't do anything about, you can't change. <laughs> All you can say is, aren't we experiencing this weather together? Yeah. And in uh, that but, sense, you can think of conversation as just sort of stitching together the pieces of the day in a hmm. way that enables it to be shared. Yeah. Yeah. Is um, so how I mean, how do you define conversation as distinct from other kinds of discourse? You know, whether that's well, I, I mean, think- I, so I guess that there are certainly transactional kinds of discourse where I, when I go, when I tell the server what I want at the restaurant, that's not much of a conversation usually. Right. And actually, I think that a lot of conversation in our capitalist or late capitalist or post-capitalist culture has become transactional. Mm-hmm. In fact, people who go to parties often unabashedly talk about networking. Yeah. How can I use you to further my career? Or yeah. what can I offer you in exchange? And to just have a an occasion of being together and exchanging thoughts or observations, mm-hmm. even as you say, on the weather is really for no purpose other than uh, sustained attention to one another. Mm. Yeah. Sustained attention. I love that. That's, that's really good. 
you know, when you talk about transactional and sort of in a, in a capitalist world that that conversation becomes transactional, you know, there's that there's that moment in um, in Dante in the Inferno, and I, I can't remember what circle is what, but but where the where the misers and the spendthrifts are, they're in every other part of hell. Um, the different individuals are distinguishable from one another, but but they're for the, among the misers and the spendthrifts. They're indistinguishable because they're like currency. These are people who 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 misused currency, and you know, it, it, whereas there's a in a barter economy, the you know the 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 uh, what the um, uh, blacksmith brings is very different from what the baker brings, and as they trade, there's something individual about that. Mm-hmm. Whereas when we when we're working with currency, it's it's all in, you know the whole point of currency is that it's indistinguishable, right? That's right, and I I think about this book that's become a kind of classic of its own kind. I think it was written in the '60s by Lewis Hyde called The Gift. And he talks about, he's an anthropologist, and he talks okay. about the gift economy, and that in most traditional cultures, there are things that cannot be bought and sold. They can uh-huh. be given. Yeah. But that we need in in a healthy culture to have those things which have no, which can't be commodified. And mm-hmm. so I think about the ways in which we have commodified airtime, space, water, earth, and even our conversational time then begins to be drawn into the marketplace in that way. Yeah. And, and of course, people are legitimately paid for teaching, lecturing, mm-hmm. um, those kinds of things. But I think yeah. that to preserve a space of exchanging the gift of language with each other is deeply nourishing and important. Yeah. I, I, who was it? I, I, Somebody talks about the idea that maybe teachers, instead of instead of giving them a salary, call it an honorarium, right? I mean, we 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 don't, you know, that that this we're paying you to honor you, but but this but your teaching is not a commodity, right? And, and in and, academic settings, that is what they call it, an honorarium, yeah. and I I appreciate that. Yeah, yeah. Except it's also an excuse to pay whatever they feel like paying you. Well, that's true too. <laughs> That's true, too. And I, I don't want to lay too much emphasis on the capitalist frame, except that I think that has, you know, the language of the marketplace has invaded the, both the church and the academy in ways that yeah. are worth being alert to. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, and what's the difference in um, conversation and debate? How, how are those two ideas different Well, or related? I will... I will reply with an anecdote, which is that years ago when I was teaching at Westmont College, they had a debate tournament every year with other colleges, which uh-huh. many schools do. But I noticed in preparation for debate how students would just really work on a position. And boy, they were going to win something. And again, I think debate has its place and it's really good to have a vigorous debate and yeah work out the implications of your position. On the other hand, it is hard to stay in a debate and honor the ambiguities and the complexities that characterize almost any human situation that's worth talking about. Yeah. Because really, where we live is the gray area. I wrote a piece a while back called The Gray Area is Holy Ground. And I really Mm. think that that's where what God has called us into is... um, 
a place uh, where we have to work out our salvation with each other in the midst of very uh, troubling, paradoxical, conflicting, shifting matters. And so we have to be agile and we have to be deft. And I just, I resist the part of debate that locks people into having to prove their point, because I think that is when a lot of people stop listening. Yeah. You know, there, there's a, there's a, a kind of debate, a way to debate that I haven't, you don't see very often that really is geared toward finding what's true. Like let's together figure out what's, what's true. Oh Um, yeah. You've probably read Alan Jacobs' book, uh, How to Think. Yeah, parts of it. And I, I guess I, I shouldn't put you so on the spot. for him. Yeah, yeah. But he, he talks about, now I can't remember the name of the debate society. It's the long, the long something, the long era, the long, the long now society, I think. And one of their rules is before you can speak, when it's your turn to speak, you have to, you have to summarize what the person before you said in a way that they would agree is true that that's what they said, right? You don't have to agree with it. Yeah, that's such a discipline. And when I teach argumentation in writing courses or when I have taught it, one of the things we start with is um, making concessions. Mm -hmm. Just how much concession can you make? Because the more you can afford to concede, the more you can recognize that another position is plausible or viable, the more generous you can be about that, the more credibility you also gain for your own position because it says, I've arrived at my position after having sifted through a lot of things that have merit, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but I've found my place on that 365 degree circle. Yeah, yeah. The other thing that I resist about debate is the either or mentality. Mm-hmm. Um, people keep talking these days about listening to the other side. And I think, uh-huh. We are so bifurcated politically and in so many other ways in this culture. But really, there are never just two sides to every question. There are 365 sides. Yeah. So so to resist that tendency to just polarize, I think, Mm -hmm. takes some vigorous attention to the form of the conversation. Yeah. Yeah, and I think it's in, in the same chapter of the, of the Alan Jacobs book I was just talking about. I think it's the same chapter. They talk. He talks about a society, a debating society at Yale, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and I should know the name of it because it's a very, it's a very well known debating society. But but one of the questions when you join is, have you ever been, uh, have you ever broken anybody on the floor? Which is you know, in the course of debate, caused your opponent to change their mind. And then the next question is, have you ever been broken on the floor? And the correct answer is yes. I mean, like the, the answer they're looking for is yes, not no, I've never been wrong, but I'm, I am uh, honest enough in the way I discuss that I'm willing to say, you know what, you're, you're right. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's, I love that. I've never heard the phrase. I haven't read that. I just barely skimmed Alan's book to be honest, but, um, but the, idea that someone might actually change his mind when he has more evidence mm-hmm. is really getting buried. And yeah. I remember a provost we, I worked with some years ago for whom I had so much respect because he was a very public person at our school and he had to make some hard decisions. But if you talk to him and presented 
thoughts or point of view or evidence that he hadn't heard. He would almost always say, I have to think about that. And then he would come back in the next meeting and he will have thought of it. And he frequently, if not completely changed his mind, he would frequently have shifted his position to accommodate new information. And that's becoming rare. Yeah. Why, Why is it shameful when you learn new facts to change your mind? Well, I think that we tend to, in so many ways, perhaps because of professional sports, I don't know, but we we tend to really have reinforced the model of winning and losing Mm -hmm. in such big ways in this culture that it's very hard to construct public situations or social situations in which that win-lose model doesn't dominate. Yeah, yeah. Um, And I have known people who are so used to that, that it's very hard for them to be in a conversation without setting it up as an argument. Uh And so I I find that one of the things that's really helpful to me these days is what I keep calling a meta conversation, Uh which is just to pause and call attention to the words themselves. Mm -hmm. What do you, the way you did about the word conversation but just what do you mean by that exactly? What do I mean yeah. exactly? Let me just think about this word and how we're using it. Because yeah. I find that attention to language kind of um, opens up the realm of reflection rather yeah. than getting you locked into presenting an evidence, presenting evidence to prove a point. Yeah, yeah. Okay, that, that does bring up a point I wanted to, to check in with you about. And that is, on the one hand, you talk about the importance of uh, sorting of of real, you know, realizing that words change, that um, not just that words change over time, but in a, in a given context, words mean different things. And so, um, um, <laughs> I think we have a tendency to, um, in other when other people use words, we we pay attention to their to their connotations, and when we use words, we say no we're sticking to the denotations with, with my language. Yeah. Um, but, and, but at the same time, or, you know, in, in the same chapter, you talk about the importance of paying attention to to the histories of words, to what words used to mean. And in, in some ways, those two ideas uh, can come into conflict. Right. I mean, insofar as, I mean, sometimes I see people talk about that. They'll trot out, word histories as if that, that, I mean, it's a little bit like trotting out the, de- the dictionary definition, right? Mm-hmm. Which you, which you warn against. In, your, your, <laughs> in my first chapter, yeah. Yeah. But then there's a way to talk about etymology that's like, now what this word really means is what the Romans thought it meant. Oh, yeah. Well, I would never say what it really means, but mm-hmm. I might say, you know, this word has a really interesting history. Mm-hmm. It has layers of meaning, some of which are still... Um, echoing in the background that it's a bigger mm-hmm. word than we might realize, and yeah. it's got some some connotative richness that it's yeah. worth recalling. Mm-hmm. But I don't. I think that what it really means is a mistaken idea to begin with, because language does evolve. It's a living language, and mm-hmm. it's got a, a certain fluidity to it. And there are various variants is in regional use, for instance. <laughs> yeah. There's, isn't, what is that line in My Fair Lady where um, Henry Higgins says about American English? He's speaking about English, and he says the Americans haven't spoken it for years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Um, I love etymologies because of the way they can really enrich your own sense of the words you use yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, now we've already we've already hit one of your your strategies for maintaining clarity, integrity, and authenticity in discourse, right? and that is define your terms. Mm-hmm. Um, I have another one, another one of your strategies I want to talk about. And then I'd, I'd like to, to hear, we can't cover all your strategies, but, but I'd like to maybe hear from uh, you on one of your, one of your other favorites. Um, but here's a strategy that I, that I want to talk about is the idea of, um, I, I think you have a chapter titled articulate your outrage. Mm-hmm. Is that a chapter title? Do I have that right? Or all your outrage or something. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and so, encouraging people to articulate their outrage feels to me like you're coming in a conflict with your your commitment to civility. I'm I'm asking a I'm asking this in such a way that's inviting you to, to you bring the nuance. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So so how do those ideas square with one another? Well, I think I'll start with the word civility that it does okay. mean. It comes from Civitas. How do we comes out of that ancient question of how we manage to live together and negotiate things without killing each other, right? And so, but I think that civility often gets confused with a kind of blandness mm. or niceness mm-hmm. that is really not the point. And I think civil people are people who are very attentive, careful about their own speech willing, as you have said, and I've said, to change their minds or perspective when they receive new evidence. But I also think that it belongs to civility to um, allow yourself, your felt response to things, and, you know, connect your body, your mind, your visceral responses, your heart, so that if you witness an injustice, you will be outraged by that. There are pl- there's a place for indignation. And again, to go to an etymology, one of the ancient meanings of rage is passion. Uh-huh. It really connects to compassion. And so mm. I think there are things about which it's not okay to be bland or even soft-spoken, but vigorous and clear. So when I think about articulating outrage, I'm not talking about just spitting and flailing and mm. waving your fist. I'm talking <laughs> about channeling that passion into a very clear statement of protest, which originally meant to speak for, not speak against. Uh-huh. But protest to protect the vulnerable or to mm-hmm. speak for the voiceless. And there are yeah. things that... I don't think people of faith are quite outraged enough about um, yeah. in some quarters. Yeah. yeah. That's where I was So if civility is learning how to live together without killing one another, when people are being killed, that's a good time to be outraged. <laughs> to be yeah. outraged. Yeah. And the, and articulate, civil. the articulate part of it is then um, find the words through which to funnel it so that you can speak truth to power. And so that you mm-hmm. can speak mm-hmm. into the public forum in a way that can that's capable of being heard but that's where i think that advice to be wise as serpents and harmless as doves really um, becomes pertinent yeah that's a paradox to live by yeah 
So you have diagnosed a tendency to not be willing to to change, to, to change our minds, you know, a sort of cultural mania for, <laughs> for, for sticking to our guns, uh, whatever position we've taken. Um, and, and what is the, how do we get out of that? I mean, how do we move toward being the kind of people who are willing to change our minds when the evidence changes? Right. Well, I think that we have to cultivate circles of trust in which we can have those conversations and practice them. I think it's partly a matter of practice so that you don't uh-huh. get sucked into the dominant discourse of the marketplace mm-hmm. or, say, the, the sports competition. I mean, when you talk about people who say, um, by gum, I'm sticking to my guns, mm-hmm. That, I think, is reinforced by a sort of sports mentality. You know, my, mm-hmm. this is my team. I don't care mm-hmm. how much they've lost. Or this is my political party. By gum, I'm going to vote for my candidate. I don't care yeah. what the platform is. I mean, that degenerates into a kind of uh, dangerous, simple-mindedness. And so yeah. I think to help one another um, resist that, means in churches, in book groups, in public gatherings, in family circles, to really practice with one another the listening, the attentive listening, asking for clarification, holding each other accountable, exploring things, so that we can equip one another to go outwards from there and and foster a different kind of conversation. I love the phrase that Um, a pastor friend of ours uses to describe what he feels his calling is, which is to equip the saints. I Mm -hmm. I think he got that phrase from Calvin. I'm not sure, but, (laughs) but equipping the saints and I'm going to help provide you with the reminders and even the language that you need to navigate the world with integrity. Mm Mm-hmm. So, do you see um, the the movement toward that kind of integrity as happening individual to individual and sort of growing circles of individuals and friends and, and family? Is, is there any larger scale way to, to move the needle? Well, ideally, it happens in classrooms, and I think uh-huh. it can happen in churches. I mean, uh-huh. churches, adult ed uh, programs are wonderful places for people to do continuing education in a mm-hmm. in in an environment of faith. Yeah. And I think it can happen when any intentional group of people get together and for the purpose of really helping one another refine those, those skills that, you know, book groups are lovely because they gather people around a text and say, Mm -hmm. let's pay attention together. Yeah. And let's learn something together. Yeah. That ideal of lifelong learning, I think, is something to be held onto and reclaimed anywhere we can. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so we have talked. You, you, in your book, you identify strategies again for maintaining clarity, integrity, authenticity, and discourse. As so we've we've covered two, that is, define your terms and articulate outrage. Mm-hmm. Pick one or two that you're that you wish I had asked you about. <laughs> well, 
one that I wrote about both in this book and the one that preceded it, Caring for Words in a Culture of Lies, um, Promote Poetry. Mm. Because <laughs> I think that a lot of people have poetry anxiety or haven't yeah. read any poetry since college uh-huh. or associate poetry with some English teacher they didn't like. <laughs> but unlike many other cultures, poetry in American culture has tended to be consigned to kind of marginal groups who meet in cafes and listen to each other's poems, which is really not where poetry belongs. Uh-huh. And certainly Eastern European and Middle Eastern cultures know that the poets are dangerous people. <laughs> um, yeah. That poetry is where you do that close work with language that dusts it off and cleans it up and sharpens it and makes it visible and makes it usable again in new ways. Yeah. So it feels like the poets are the farmers of the soil, if you want to use the soil analogy for yeah. <clears throat> language and i think even just to know to remember some lines of poems by heart Mm -hmm. and carry them with us those little pieces of what matthew arnold called the best that has been thought and said (laughs) helps us to that helps us at the moments that we need it yeah and often i've asked people what's a line from a poem or maybe a hymn that has come back to you um And I don't know, I think many hymns will do that. If I think Mm -hmm. how often I have come back to heart of my own heart, whatever befall, be thou my vision. It's it's a prayer that I carry as a prayer, but it's a line Mm -hmm. from a song. And similarly, I've loved the line from Robert Frost's poem, After Apple Picking, where he talks about the end of the harvest and how tired he is. I used to come back to this at the end of a teaching year. He says, there were 10,000 fruit to touch, cherish in hand and not let fall. And sometimes at the end of a day of office hours with students who were kind of whiny or they didn't know what to do about <laughs> their papers. And, you know, I would just feel like each one of these is to, is, there's this moment to cherish them in hand and not let them fall. Mm. And that oh, line would bring me back to the pastoral dimension of my work. Yeah. Nothing else. So I think that those lines we carry from poets who have lifted them up in a structure and a context that takes them out of the ordinary flow of language really help to equip us. Yeah. That's great. You know, when I when I read poetry, I don't usually say, I think I could do that, but what I do find is that I'm enriched in a way that I, I want to go write what I can write. You know, it makes me want to go do what I, what is my calling. Yeah. Um, and even my calling, if my calling weren't writing, I still suspect it would make me <laughs> feel like going and pursuing my calling. Yeah. Good poetry. Well, you talk right. about how poetry inspires and inspiring means to breathe into, right? And, mm-hmm. and it even is a conspiracy in the sense that a poem really calls you to breathe your way through it. It phrases mm. things for you so that it changes your the way you take a breath. Yeah. And so it really goes right into the body. And by the way, when I teach poetry workshops, I really do believe that poetry is a, a basic human skill 
mm-hmm. that all of us can cultivate. We all, can't all be sort of great published poets, but one exercise I've given people, and you can try this at home, <laughs> is to write three sentences starting with a simple observation, like, um, my cat got out. You know, just something ordinary, or mm-hmm. the leaves are falling. And then add two other sentences to it to make it a little three-sentence composition. And then you mess around with the sentences and lay them out so they look like a poem. And you begin to see in the phrasing itself the kind of energy that words give each other when they sit on the same line. Mm-hmm. And your attention is brought in from the idea of a sentence to the chemistry of the words themselves. And you register them differently. So, anybody can do that. Three sentences. Really <laughs> <Yeah>. easy. <laughs> Excellent. Um, how about, I, I, I think we have time for another, uh, you have another strategy for, um, yeah. uh, for clarity, integrity, and um, authenticity? Well, one of the chapters is called Mind Your Metaphors. Uh-huh. Um, I think that it's very easy to use metaphors so commonly and they become so commonplace we forget that they are metaphors Mm -hmm. one of the i've done a lot of teaching in medical humanities and Uh one of the issues that has come up in many conversations is the use of military language in medicine which is not entirely peculiar to american medicine but i think we do it more than some other Mm. cultures so we talk about um killing and eradicating and bombarding and Mm -hmm. taking aggressive strategies and you know you know the language especially in oncology Uh, a friend of mine wrote a book exploring uh she called reconstructing illness where she explored Mm -hmm. the social dimension of what how we understand illness in this culture and she tells a story about a young man who's a quaker and he develops cancer he's a lifelong quaker committed uh-huh. to pacifism and yeah and the oncologist keeps talking about how well we're going to beat this you're a fighter and so on using that language which is quite common and it's yeah. metaphorical right and finally the young man had the presence of mind to say you know what i'm not a fighter i don't want to fight i've really committed my life and my faith journey to peacemaking So could we just find another way to talk about this? Because I don't want to think of my body as a battleground. Hmm. And to his credit, the oncologist sat with him and said, let's talk about this as a journey. Yeah. And it makes a huge difference to think of the journey you're on rather than the battle you're in. Hmm. And so in so many ways, I think that we um, rather unconsciously begin to use economic metaphors or military metaphors for mechanistic metaphors? For mechanistic metaphors, exactly, for the body. And think yeah. of all the computer metaphors we've appropriated with input and output and feedback. And, yeah. Um, those all have consequences. It's not that yeah. they're all bad, but at least to understand the logic of the metaphors we're using uh, keeps us accountable. Well, um, yeah, that's... I have. I think it's from from reading uh, Wendell Berry lately. Just just thinking about the importance of of not thinking of the nature and human beings as as machinery. It, it really makes a big difference. Yeah. To I mean, the, the whole point of machinery is to banish mystery. 
That's right. And we live in a mysterious world. <laughs> well, I think Wendell Berry is one of the great voices of our time in the way that he models um, not only elegant use of language, but a use of language that reaches back into um, that long history of human conversation. And I have noticed in his writing that he doesn't very often use the terminology from clinical psychology that we so often domesticate. I mean, I've heard so many students when they're really just sad or discouraged say, oh, I'm so depressed. <laughs> or yeah. um, talking about neuroses or something. But I noticed that Barry reaches back for beautiful older words like sorrow. Mm. Now, that's, that's got a capaciousness to it that speaks of a range of human experience that you can't get at with um, clinical language. Yeah. So I, he's a good model. He's yeah. Yeah. And, and sorrow um, uh, humanizes <laughs> the sorrow <laughs> and it, it, nobody has ever suspected there was a pill to deal with sorrow. Right. Um, That's right. Yeah, that's great. Okay, well, I always end these conversations by asking, who are the writers who make you want to write? Well, Wendell Berry is one of them. What a lovely transition. <laughs> <laughs> I think that he's, his sentences slow you down in, uh -huh. a, in a very good sense. It's like someone who's deliberate about conversation. And the, the effect is we're not going to hurry through this. Mm -hmm. We're going to just dwell on this character, if it's his fiction, for a yeah. while, talking about Hannah Coulter or Jaber Crow. We're mm -hmm. going to just sit there in his barbershop and take things in. Yeah. Gonna, as, my, as my North Carolina grandpa used to put it, we're going to set a spell. Mm -hmm. Just witness yeah. one another. So the beauty of his lines is really um, enriching and quieting and empowering for me. Mm -hmm. But I have to say that on a very other note, one of my very favorite writers is Annie Dillard. And mm -hmm. I keep kidding with people about how I, I want to write like Annie before I die. <laughs> I have had a colleague who said, I don't know, she's just a little too dazzling, but <laughs> bedazzlement. She just had, brings into her writing this sense of astonishment at the world. Mm -hmm. It's mm -hmm. There's something so childlike about it. And she manages in a very articulate and educated and practiced way as a lover of language to hold on to the, hey, look, energy of a little kid that says, yeah. are you remember that line from the Hopkins poem where, that starts, look, look at the stars, look at all the fire folks sitting in the air. <laughs> oh, look, element in Annie Dillard's prose makes me want to um, offer that to people. She's got kind of vitality and vigor in it. So I think there are writers you love for their clarity. There are writers you love for their agility. Mm -hmm. There are writers like um, Brian Doyle is a wonderful yeah. writer who died way too young. Oh, man. Um, a poet and a wonderful humorist. I love his book of Uncommon Prayer. Oh, I don't. Have yeah, I, I've heard. I've seen the title, but never read it. Oh, 
put it on your list. It's okay. just a delight. But these prayers he writes really are prayers. Mm-hmm. And yet, they're also, some of them, quite funny, especially the titles. He gives each of them a title. And they're so quirky. They all serve as a reminder that we can come to God in a completely open-hearted and sincere way. And if we are to bring all of ourselves, part of that is a sort of comic sense of the world in the mess it's in. Yeah. So, he's another one, you know. But I think it's really good to collect writers and and recognize what you love in them. Like your friends, you know. There are some friends Mm -hmm. you love for their, their... quick senses of humor and their wit. And there are some friends, friends you love just because it's so relaxing to be with them. Yeah. Yeah. Well, as you said at the beginning of this conversation, there are, there are things that can't be sold. that can only be given. And, yeah. and these kind of gifts you're talking about, um, you know, the, the gifts that people have um, for whether it's humor or insider or whatever, are things that, that they can give and nobody else can give. And they're not anonymous. And they're not commodified. That's right. right. You can just, you, you give what you have to give. And that's such a, a helpful. Um, well, could I just mention two others while we're thinking? Oh, this? please. Yeah. One is, I think one of the greatest writers of the 20th century and now the 21st has been Toni Morrison. Oh man. Yes. I think that especially she's just a superb storyteller and mm-hmm. she draws so deeply on both the literary tradition in English and African and African-American folklore that goes way back. Mm -hmm. And I think in this generation, when we're thinking so much these days about how to rectify a miserable history of race relations in this country, that along with the writers who address that head on, I think to to read someone with a voice like hers. Yeah. And an awareness like hers that's so generous and mm-hmm. so spacious. Yeah. And it's got its hard edges. But I feel as though she, her novels by themselves give us a much needed education in what it is to listen across profoundly different historical and racial experiences. Yeah. Oh, I so agree. That's, that, I'm glad you mentioned her. She yeah. comes up pretty often in these, in these conversations. And, and you said you, you had two. So who's your one other is a tiny book that I would recommend to many people by Timothy Snyder, who's a Yale historian okay. called On Tyranny, 20 uh-huh. Lessons from the 20th Century. Mm-hmm. What I heard just recently about that book was that he had to kind of fight with the publishers to keep it very small. Uh-huh. If it weren't full of such depth, you could read it at one sitting. Yeah. But he wanted it to be small because he said it's too important to have people put it off. Yeah. Just, and the question he's addressing is what can we learn from populations that have been, has, have succumbed to authoritarianism mm-hmm. in order to avoid that? And I, it's timely and it's um, simply written, it's deceptively simple. Yeah. Because he's digested so much of the history of the 20th century that we so desperately need to learn from. Yeah. I've read that book too. And I thought it was incredible. I, I, I wish everybody would read it. So, yeah. so well, maybe everybody kept it little. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Um, Marilyn McIntyre, thank you so much for being here. Um, and I hope uh, people continue to read and digest and benefit from speaking peace in a climate of conflict. 
as well as your other books. So thank you, and uh, I hope we can talk again soon. The Rabbit Room has partnered with Lipscomb University to make this podcast possible. Lipscomb has graciously given us access to their recording studio in the Center for Entertainment and Arts building. We're so grateful for their sponsorship, their encouragement, and the good work they do in Nashville. Special shout out as well to Jess Ray for letting us use her song Too Good as part of this podcast. Visit JessRayMusic.com to hear more of her beautiful songs. The Habit Membership is a library of resources for writers by me, Jonathan Rogers. More importantly, The Habit is a hub of community where like-minded writers gather to discuss their work and give each other a little more courage. Find out more at thehabit.co. This podcast was produced by The Rabbit Room, where art nourishes community and community nourishes art. All our podcasts are made possible by the generous support of our members. To learn more about us, visit rabbitroom.com. And to become a member, rabbitroom.com slash donate.